We talk a lot about impermanence in the teachings, about how things change so often. But on a long retreat like this, it can also seem like every day is the same, (laughs) doesn't it? You know, sure, the weather might be a little different, maybe lunch is a little different, your mood might be a little different, but basically, same day, over and over again with slight (laughs) variations. But there are two that are usually somewhat different. For Halloween, we get pumpkins, and for Thanksgiving today, we get a beautiful meal. So I hope that you had a sense of the joy that the staff took in preparing both the dining room and setting it up with the tablecloths and decorations and also serving that beautiful meal to us today. I just, we just spoke to Brett and he just said how much joy they had in, in preparing that. And on your behalf, we thanked them for all the work they put into making that beautiful meal. And it is an important day for, for many people in this country Some people love it, for other people it's a really difficult or challenging day. But the important thing to realize about today, being Thanksgiving Day, is it's just a concept. Sometimes people forget that in this country, (laughs) that most of the world doesn't have the same view of this day that you have. And even many people who live in this country don't have the same view of this day as, as other people do. Um, And I can really, I know that for a fact because I'm Australian. I didn't grow up with Thanksgiving and it wasn't until I moved to this country now many years ago that I got to see what a big deal it is for a lot of people. I have a a friend back in the Bay Area who's very gregarious and loves to get people together and do social things and she would always be saying, well, what are you going to do for Thanksgiving? And I would say, I don't know, I don't care, you know, probably nothing. And I'll never forget the look on her face was one of disbelief and horror (laughs) that I would say, I don't care about Thanksgiving. And so I would always get embroiled in her plans and we would end up with what we called the orphans. And she has a tiny one bedroom uh, condo and we'd have about 20 people crammed in there. And it is a lovely day. It's a beautiful gesture of gratefulness and sharing that that is the, the heart or the essence of this day. And that's what we need to remember and to honor that there, people can have mixed feelings about a day like today. I'm sure many of you do. I mean, if you were out in the world, you would feel the pressure that so many people feel to make the perfect meal. It's like Martha Stewart on steroids is Thanksgiving. You know, the, the perfect centerpiece, simple, but perfect. <laughs> you know, every new dishes, and, and they've got to be the same old dishes and the good new dishes, and. It's just kind of crazy out there. And then this ideal that's that's perpetuated of the happy family getting together for Thanksgiving. I think I talked the other night about, you know, how sometimes we think things should make us happy and they often don't. Well, I think Thanksgiving is a good example of that. And of course, it can be a time of great joy and, and togetherness in families, but to recognize that it's not that way for everyone. Or perhaps you found the wise way is small doses, and that's what works for family and getting together. But at its heart, if we lose some of the kind of pressure of the cultural trappings, there is a beautiful quality to what this day represents, which is basically giving thanks 
being grateful for the blessings in our life. Its origin, of course, being in the, the time, that first year that the pilgrims who arrived here um, were aided by the native people who showed them how to grow certain crops and, and work with the land and what fruits and vegetables could be grown. And so they had a, a bountiful feast. As we know, that initial gesture of generosity uh, was not always reciprocated. And understandably, the native peoples have very mixed feelings about this day because they were so generous and at their heart are a generous people. I've, I'm, you know, not being from this country, I don't know a huge amount about the Native American culture, but I've read a little bit and spent some time in the Southwest and really been um, impressed and inspired by the stories of the generosity that is at the heart of their cultures, from, from what I've understood. Um, Guy and I spent some time in Mesa Verde, that amazing set of dwellings, cliff-faced dwellings. Um, it's in, the, in uh, the Four Corners area. And we went to a museum there that, that had a lot of um, information about the Native American way of life. And they had a list of all of the things that we as a culture, actually for the whole world, ha got from the native people of those times. And it's an amazing list. It includes maple syrup, corn, squash, potato, sweet potato, turkey, pumpkin, beans, tomato, strawberry, peanut, avocado, sunflower, and cotton. All were here and they were cultivating and through their, their wisdom made available. And it's not just the things that they were so generous with. They have um, an amazingly wise attitude to life, a sense of appreciation. And often in the things I've read, also a very ironic sense of humor. This is something from John Lane Deer. He's a Sioux Lakota, who actually only died in 1976. Before our white brothers arrived to make us civilized men, we didn't have any kind of prison. Because of this, we had no delinquents. Without prisons, there can be no delinquents. We had no locks, nor keys, and therefore among us, there were no thieves. When someone was so poor that he couldn't afford a horse, a tent, or a blanket, he would, in that case, receive it all as a gift. We were too uncivilized to give great importance to private property. We didn't know any kind of money, and consequently, the value of a human being was not determined by his wealth. We had no written laws laid down, no lawyers, no politicians. Therefore, we were not able to cheat and swindle one another. We were really in bad shape before the white men arrived. And I don't know how to explain how we were able to manage without these fundamental things that, so they tell us, are so necessary for civilized society. And it really does seem that generosity was woven into their culture. And Whereas it can seem, and for many people it is so, that our culture values or gives status according to how much you have, the possessions that you have. And I don't know if you're in the swing of things, but today being Thanksgiving means tomorrow is what they call Black Friday, 
You remember that concept from last year? I'm only getting to kind of know what it is. Apparently, it's the, the biggest shopping day of the year. So of the many things you can be grateful for <laughs> is that you're here and not out there for the craziness of tomorrow. Uh, you know, because there, there's always news, news shots, video of people lining up outside the stores at 6 a.m. and this frenzy of buying, of getting. And I remember from last year at this same time watching one of those clips and there was a man they interviewed at some shopping mall and he was kind of breathless. And the words they they, he said were, if they're selling it, we're buying it. And that's the mentality that's out there. It's like, give, give, give it to me. For the Native American culture, their status was actually predicated on how much they give away. That, that, that generosity was really such a highly valued thing. This author, Jose, uh, Jose Hobde, said, we used to say you could tell if a person was an, was an authentic native whether or not she had a red heart. A red heart had to do with whether the heart had blood from being massaged by good works, especially sharing. Just such a beautiful sense of the, the power of generosity and I think all of our hearts are probably quite red right now from the massaging they're getting from this work. So I was really touched and, and um, impressed by the wisdom of the Native peoples that, that uh, in the little reading and research that I've done, um, again, at this a guy and I would sometimes go to this place where they would hold retreats in the Southwest in this B&B called Cortez, uh, in a place called Cortez, uh, just outside Cortez. And they had a little library there. So I read of a ceremony that the native peoples would do called the Nightway Ceremony. And it's a long, complicated ritual of healing and uh, restitution and restoring harmony to both the individual but to the whole group. And at the heart of it is this prayer, this healing prayer that I read an English translation of. And again, I have no idea how accurate or authentic this is, and I'm sure it's part of a very complicated ritual, but it just touched me so much I wanted to read it to you, because it seems to me uh, uh, just a different expression of the meta-wish that we do over and over again. And it speaks to their um, how their lives were interwoven with nature. There was a sense really of not being separate from the natural world. House made of dawn, house made of evening light, house made of dark cloud, house made of male rain, house made of dark mist, house made of female rain, house made of pollen, house made of grasshoppers, dark cloud is at the door, the trail out of it is dark cloud. The zigzag lightning stands high upon it, an offering I make. Restore my feet for me. Restore my legs for me. Restore my body for me. Restore my mind for me. Restore my voice for me. This very day, take your spell. Take out your spell for me. Happily, I recover. Happily. My interior becomes cool. Happily, I go forth. My interior feeling cool, may I walk. No longer sore, may I walk. Impervious to pain, may I walk. 
with lively feelings, may I walk. As it used to be long ago, may I walk. Happily, may I walk. Happily, with abundant dark clouds, may I walk. Happily, with abundant showers, may I walk. Happily, with abundant plants, may I walk. Happily, on a trail of pollen, may I walk. Happily, may I walk. Being as it used to be long ago, may I walk. It is beautiful before me. It is beautiful behind me. It is beautiful below me. It is beautiful above me. It is beautiful all around me. In beauty, it is finished. In beauty, it is finished. It's such a heartfelt wish for harmony and healing. And apparently, in that culture, beauty actually represented harmony and right relationship, things being in their natural order. In beauty, it is finished. Just touches us so deeply to feel that sense. And so in speaking of the generosity and the wisdom of the native cultures of this land, we have to acknowledge the complexity of this day and the shared karma we all have to both appreciate the beauty, the abundance and the blessings, but not deny what's difficult for us in this day, in our own experience, but in the bigger picture as well. It's all part of giving thanks, is opening to the truth of things. Because we never know what we might actually be grateful for. The things that are often the most difficult and challenging for us turn out to be the greatest gifts. Another great um, Native American saying, give thanks for the unknown blessing that is already on its way. I really uh, experienced this on a long retreat I did here a number of years ago. I did my first uh, intensive metta retreat, six-week metta retreat, and had numerous rounds of purification. I'm sure you know what that means and feels like. And after each one, I kind of go, okay, that's enough. You know, I could finish now. <laughs> but as you know, the retreat doesn't finish on that timetable, so I'd continue practicing and go through another round of purification and go, okay, that's enough. I could finish now. Retreat not over, so you keep practicing. And my last round of purification was uh, in doing the metta practice. At the end, when you're doing all beings, the traditional way of doing it is um, 12 categories of beings, beginning with all females and all males. Uh, sorry, beginning with all beings, but the second group is, begins with all females and all males, to all the 10 directions. So the cardinal points and above and below. And so it would take a long time to do this practice, to go through all 12 categories to all 10 directions over and over again. And so to m maintain the connection, the feeling of metta as I did this, I would imagine these little vignettes, all males to the north, and you know, all, all creatures to the north, penguins, you know, polar bears. And so each, as I went around, I'd make these little vignettes to help me get, have something to connect with. And as I got around to the Southwest and doing all females in the Southwest, I remembered again this trip that Guy and I took. We did a long camping trip through the Southwest. 
And at one point, we were standing on the rim of Chaco Canyon, which is this beautiful canyon that actually you can't go down in unless you have a guide, because they've really uh, retained it for the native people to live in. And we were standing on the edge and could see down in this beautiful canyon, many hundreds of feet below, this Hogan native dwelling, very simple, little round structure, and moving around it a woman. And she was obviously dressed in very uh, native clothing. It was a long skirt, long, um, very simple outfit. And, you know, it was quite a distance away, but we could see her moving very methodically around her home there. And stood and watched her for a while. I hope she didn't know we were there. It felt a little intrusive. But there was just such a, again, it's all my projection. This whole story is my projection. But I just got such a hit of, purity from her and a real turning away from the lure or the comforts of you know this material world and wanting to go back to that simpler way of living being in touch with the land and it, it was a very powerful teaching for me as, as uh, we stood there and watched her and so when I thought of females to the southwest for some reason or other she came to my mind and again this became my projection to I imbued her with some life and so she became this grandmother figure. The next category is all males to the Southwest. So I gave her a grandson who would come visit and it was kind of like a slow motion movie. <laughs> Every time I would click around to there, you know, they'd be in a kind of different location. So, you know, the woman would be there and then the grandson would come. And one of these iterations, I just had them sitting together, you know, in this little Hogan and one of them said to the other, I love you. And, the, you know, the, and so the grandmother said back, I love you too. And it just hit me. What, again, my, it's all in my mind, but it was so powerful, this expression of unconditional love of a grandmother to a grandson. It was so powerful. It was like the purest feeling of metta that I'd ever felt, just tuning into that little scenario I'd created and it was, again, one of those moments I said, yes, great, meta-feeling could finish now. Of course, it wasn't over. The purification came when I recognized how I hadn't actually had that in my life, especially growing up. I'd never felt that from my parents. Had I'm one of six kids. I kind of got lost in the shuffle. My parents are always too busy or tired. And the grief that came out of that was so deep and so profound, I just cried for hours. Out of that little connection to that woman in Chaco Canyon, it was actually one of my both times of deepest grieving, but also of really deep healing in just opening to that. And so to this day, when I think of her, I almost tear up with gratitude just from what she represents to me and I wish her well wherever she is in whatever form. So we never know what's going to be the source of a gift for us and our willingness to stay open and have that sense of receptivity. It can open doors we didn't even know were closed. That's how it was for me. So why is this feeling of gratitude so beautiful? Why is it so important? We actually at Spirit Rock joke a little and call it the fifth Brahma Vihara because it is such a beautiful quality. And I you know, hope you explore it a little yourself. 
I read an article by an Australian journalist who, who was also exploring this theme, and he said that a grateful attitude can change your life. People who develop the ha habit of looking out for things to be grateful for, especially acts of kindness from others, naturally feel better about the world. Their gratitude also encourages them to act more kindly, more benevolent, benevolently, and more sensitively. Gratitude, it turns out, is a noble sentiment, good for our mental health and social harmony. So what are the qualities that are present in gratitude and feeling grateful? Again, I just was sitting this morning in the sitting and at home just feeling into this. And I encourage you to do that too, if you have a chance to experience it. Beautiful qualities like appreciation, contentment, happiness, connection. Obviously, we're connected to what we're grateful to or for. And it's a very warm, soft, poignant feeling, isn't it? It's just a beautiful quality of heart. And so we when we're grateful, we recognize that something has been offered, that we've been taken care of in some way. We've been given something, whether it's a specific object or just a way we're held. And so we recognize that. It, it actually um, is a foundation for our faith and trust in goodness, in goodness of ourselves, but also goodness of others and goodness of the world. And so there can be a specific kind of gratitude about something that's been done directly for us, but often we can have just a general sense of gratitude, of appreciation, of all the blessings in our lives. And this, I think, is a really wholesome attitude to cultivate or to tune into when it's present. There were some British researchers who said that the reason gratitude may be an important personality trait is because it seems to be one of the strongest links, to have one of the strongest links with mental health of any personality variable. I thought that was really interesting, gratitude. They quote various research projects that have shown that a sense of gratitude is strongly connected to life satisfaction and to the quality of personal relationships. People who feel a strong sense of gratitude for what others have done for them are more likely to notice they have been helped, to respond appropriately, and to return the help at some future point. All good prescriptions for maintaining successful social relationships. So it's really support for the interweaving of connectedness that is the truth of things, acknowledging that. And I think I mentioned in one of my earlier talks about a time on retreat where I was having difficulty and to really turn my mind to lighten it up, I did gratitude practice. I'll just mention it briefly again because it's such a great thing to do where I made a list of however many, it was, I think I got to about 20, made a list, wrote them all down of all the things I was grateful for in my life and began each morning as soon as I did my, the beginning of my first meditation was reading that list and taking a moment with each one and letting myself really feel the impact, the warmth, the appreciation. And after a while I could memorize the list. I didn't have to look. It was just so easy and so joyful to go through it. And then in the evening, every night, as I lay down in bed before I went to sleep, 
a list of the five things that day that I was grateful for. Usually right there, number one, was being able to lie down in bed at night <laughs> after a long day of practice. I was pretty always grateful for that. But just the simple things of a good meal or a moment of sunshine or a warm shower, it, it just really shifts the mind. And then uh, Guy and I were doing a, leading an old student's class in our home for, for a number of years. And when we did the theme of gratitude, one of the students shared this practice that has since rippled out to a lot of people. He said that he took up the practice with a friend, he, we call him a gratitude buddy, that every day before they went to bed, they will, would email each other with something they were grateful for and really made a commitment to keep doing that. And even if the other person hadn't done it, you would still email your friend with just one thing you were grateful for. And a number of people took up this practice and reported on how much impact it had to just, instead of focusing as we often do with what's wrong and what's difficult, what was good in today? What did I appreciate? And it you know, forces you to pick out that thread of goodness that was there that otherwise we wouldn't notice. So it's just a great practice to do. Now, of course, gratitude, appreciation of the blessings in our life, is basically mudita for self. We began the practice of mudita this week, and I had some questions the other day. I could tell that people were really uh, engaged with it and curious about it. It's a wonderful practice. Traditionally, it said that you don't do mudita for self. It's, it's empathetic joy or appreciative joy joy in the happiness of others, but we actually feel it's really important to do mudita for self. We begin with self, and, but the traditional person to spend a lot of time with is a happy, contented person. That's who we choose to begin our metta practice for, so that it's easy to feel that, so the heart actually can just lift up when you think of this person. But we go through all the categories. And so even your difficult person, having mudita for, this is why it's a purification practice. We start to recognize, as we, you've probably already known or been told, that when you practice in this way, your chance of happiness greatly improves. There are more people out there than just you, so you have more possibilities for happiness. And it really goes against what is often our conscious or even unconscious belief that there's only a limited amount to go around. You know, it's like a pie at lunch today, you know, where it's true, you know, once people take quite a bit, there's, there's only so much of the pie. Happiness isn't like that, but we really have this sense that it is. If someone has more, it means I have less. As I said, often this is an unconscious belief, and this is why the practice of mudita is really helpful because it can break through that sense of limitation, that sense of contraction we can have about this. So we choose this person who's happy, who's contented, and we say over and over again, may your happiness and good fortune continue. May it increase and never wane. May your happiness grow. I'm happy that you're happy, whatever phrase you like to use. And see what happens. It's interesting how even if we pick someone who is a good friend, who we're really happy for, this little niggling feeling comes up that says, hmm, why them? You know, why do they have all that? And what does that say about me? And comparing, it's just, it's so natural. And it can feel uncomfortable 
when we notice that. But again, this is a purification of the practice, is really being willing to work with that. And as we do, we can find this lightness that comes. I, I think I said in my Q&A the other day, very bubbly feeling in doing metta, almost, uh, you know, that, and that can go into the exuberant side, but very joyful and light. It's, it's quite a beautiful, open, spacious feeling. And so you can start to look for places to experience this, to experience mudita, joy in the happiness of others. My good friend Sylvia Borstein tells this great story of one of her grandchildren. She's got many, but this was one of the young ones who came up with this wonderful idea, was his creation, to have every now and then what he would call surprise loving parties. And it would just be for whoever was away, and when they would come home, it would be like, surprise, we love you. <laughs> it was just such a sweet thing. It's not your birthday, it's not, not you know, a holiday, it's just a loving day for this person. It just made me so happy to hear that. As we practice mudita, though, we have to be open to what makes other people happy. And that can sometimes stretch us. I was on one of my annual trips back home to visit my family. I have a large family, as I said. They've all procreated, which has meant that I haven't had to. Lots, I have lots of nieces and nephews. And one evening we were sitting around, it was you know, getting late, we were thinking of going to bed, and my young niece comes in and she's getting ready to go out. And it's like 10 or 11 o'clock at night to a nightclub or something. And we kind of look around the adults, and for us it's kind of a form of torture. You know, if someone said, you have to go out at 11 o'clock at night, for her, it was, that was what she wanted to do. It's like, okay, may you be happy. <laughs> I don't have to do it. And then given the weather we've had recently, there's one of my favorite cartoons, kind of apropos. Someone gave this to me. It's a scene of a, a family ice fishing. So there's the father with his rod down into a hole in the ice and two young children, you can't tell what sex they are because they're so bundled up and there's icicles all over. It's a very gloomy kind of scene. And this is a caption. It doesn't get any better than this, said Dad. The kids who were hearing this for the first time were too stunned to reply. <laughs> If you like ice fishing, it doesn't get any better than that, but it doesn't do it for me somehow. But so to be open to whatever avenues you find for generating the sense of happiness, and a beautiful one is nature, perhaps not ice fishing, that's nature, but, but the joy of seeing a flower, especially at this time of year, <laughs> um, but anything, even some icicles sparkling, because there's a way in which we don't begrudge nature her beauty. You know, do you ever envy nature? We can just feel this unalloyed sense of joy in that and really notice it. You know, watching animals at play, the chipmunks or kittens or puppies. One thing you have missed being on retreat is the latest internet sensation. It'll probably be gone by the time you're out because it's puppy cam. And this couple had a dog who had a litter of puppies. And while they're away at work, they set a webcam up so they could just make sure the puppies were OK. These are really cute little dogs called, what is it, Shiba Inus. They're Jap a Japanese breed. 
and a, a co-worker happened to look over her shoulder and say, what's that? Oh, it's the dogs at home. Oh, send me that link. It was on a site that streamed video, so it was on all the time. And this co-worker started, you know, went out and it became viral. And now when you get on, like I just checked it just before I did this <laughs> talk. I told you I like animals. There were 12,000 people watching Puppy Cam. And these puppies are so cute. They're these little roly-poly bundles with little pricked ears. And they just chew on each other and roll and play. And then they'll all fall asleep in this great big bundle. There's six of them in this little, you know, they've got quite a nice enclosure and lots of toys. And every now and then the giant person will step in and the puppies will be this little. And I just put it on every time I need to smile. It's like, let's watch some puppy cam. It's it's just great. And they've got a list of people all over the world who are watching this in Austria and Iraq and, and Australia and wherever. It's, it's puppy cam. But we, so we look for things like that, just that will lift the heart and, and make us smile. Because this quality of joy is an important part of our practice. It's a very important part of the Brahma Viharas. But actually, the practice of mudita, many people say, is the hardest brahma-vihara. It's interesting, because of the tendency towards a sense of limitation, towards envy or jealousy. And so it's not often emphasized. I mean, we always hear about metta, a lot about compassion, a lot about equanimity. Mudita is kind of not so stressed, but it's so essential. And really, to help allow us to open to the suffering. It's such a great balancer. I mean, there's so much wisdom in this um, unfolding of the Brahma-viharas, from metta as its foundation around goodness, compassion we turn to the suffering. But we need the joy. We need that sense of uplift to help us stay open to the suffering, to really let us tune into the goodness that's in people for our metta practice, and to bring some warmth to the equanimity so it's not too cool and detached. And as I said, mudita for self, we consider really important, this sense of really acknowledging the places of joy in our own lives and realizing we're on this path for the ending of suffering. And what is that? It's happiness. The ending of suffering is the deepest form of happiness. So we need to look at Again, I talked in another talk about a true happiness. I'm not talking about just really the frivolous kind. But what does make us truly happy? And what causes us suffering? What is it that blocks this sense of well-being, this sense of joy that we can connect with in this moment, not as some future project, on this retreat, in our lives? What gives us access to a deep sense of joy or contentment? And what is it that blocks us for it? We can have a sense that we're only being true Buddhists if we're suffering. You know, it's all about suffering, the Four Noble Truths. You know, there is suffering in life. And the, a, a sense that, you know, we're, we're being superficial or in denial if we're not in suffering all the time. That's where the work is. You know, that's, if we're serious, we're really serious about this. We, we're, we're working with our suffering. This is not what the Buddha taught. He was called the happy one. His monks were often noted to be radiant and smiling. He never talked about suffering without talking about the end of suffering. 
And the factor of joy is in all of the lists that talk about awakening in the seven factors of enlightenment, in transcendent dependent origination, which is a wonderful teaching on the movement of the path of practice from, from suffering into joy and contentment, and then on to liberation. It's a jhanic factor. It's necessary for deep states of concentration. So it's very central. And so there's a, just a different way we can reframe our approach to practice. Instead of being all around suffering, is around happiness. There's something, a little teaching I, I adapted, I heard from another teacher, but I've adapted it. It's a different version of the Four Noble Truths. And this one says, there is happiness. There's a cause of happiness, which is non-grasping. It's possible to abide in happiness, and there's a path to happiness, the Eightfold Path. It's the same truths, just looked at differently. Sometimes we need to include that lightness when we feel caught or stuck too much in the suffering. Now, as you know from the practice that we did, there are near and far enemies to um, mudita. The near enemy I've spoken a little bit about is that sense of um, exuberance. It's where we get lost in thought, where we move out of just a direct experience of the joy and the happiness, and we're into the fantasy. Wouldn't it be great if only that, and more of this, and how about that? And it, it, it takes us into the future, usually. So we can kind of tell um, what's happening. And again, I turn to those great exemplars of the human condition, Calvin and Hobbes, for a teaching on exuberance. So they're going off with the little red wagon. And Calvin says, my life could be a lot better than it is. I'm happy, but it's not like I'm ecstatic. <laughs> and they're starting to climb a hill. Life is like topography, Hobbes. There are summits of happiness and success, and now they're starting to, they've reached the hump and they're going down the hill, starting to push down the hill. Flat stretches of boring routine and valleys of frustration and failure, and they're picking up speed down the hill through the trees. But I'm dedicating myself to experiencing only peaks. I want my life to be one never-ending ascension. Each minute of every day should bring me greater joy than the previous minute. I should always be saying, my life is better than I ever imagined it would be, and it's only getting better. <laughs> so all this time they've been hurtling down this hill. Now they've leapt off the cliff into space. I'm just going to jump from peak to peak. I'm, whoops, <laughs> they head off down into space, and they're tumbling down. And Hobbes, a voice of wisdom, says, at least with flat places, you don't have so far to go down. <laughs> but Calvin doesn't give up. Only losers go down. For me, it's only going to be up, up, up as he's tumbling down into space. That's over-exuberance, where it's just what he is isn't good enough. We're trying to make it better and better and better. So we need to stay in the moment with our practice. Again, always helpful to keep it body-based. So we're actually with that movement of energy, not lost in thought. And use that exuberance, bring it back into the practice, into staying present, the direct knowing of this feeling of joy. (coughs) 
Now the far enemy is envy or jealousy, this sense of limitation. It can be a desire for some, what someone else has or just a sense that if they have it means I don't. Somehow there's a limitation. And it can be difficult to acknowledge that we have that in us. It's not something that comes to the surface, or if it does, we kind of push it down. We don't want to acknowledge it. So it can be difficult to feel this come up in our practice, but it is the purification. It's really so helpful and freeing to notice it, to be willing to work with it. I can see for myself, and you know, just wisdom comes in, that it's often based on an illusion an illusion about someone, about they've got it all together, they've got what it takes. I mean, as we start to look a bit more closely at anyone's life, we see that everyone has difficulties, even what from the outside might look so good. I just know that within every life there is struggle and there is suffering, and so we need to just recognize that. But this culture actually celebrates envy, promotes it. As I was doing a little bit of research, I found a magazine, a computer, and a nightclub, all named Envy, with the sense of, you know, this is a good thing, because if you have it, other people have it towards you, Envy. You know, you have what they're envious of. It's just such a different relationship to it. And we just see how many objects we imbue with that sense of this is what is. The women in the room will particularly relate to this, though I'm sure none of you have gotten lost in this. For I don't know how long, it's been a couple of years, handbags. This thing about huge, humongous handbags costing thousands of dollars. I mean, it just boggles my mind. And you'll see these photos of so-and-so with, the, you know, it's twice the size of this, these little skinny women in Hollywood going with their huge purses. It's like, it's just a thing to keep stuff in. But it's like so-and-so with their such-and-such a bag worth X thousands of dollars. It boggles the mind. But this is what people, you know, spend their money on and want to have. It's become something that we must have. Researchers found that people grow accustomed to what they have, however much of it there is. Moreover, having a lot of things is not enough if other people have more. Just this sense of limitation. Again, I turn to another of the wise uh, sages of our time, Swami Beyondananda. Anyone know him? He writes in uh, Funny Times, the magazine I get. And this is a little piece called, The Heart of the Matter is the Matter of the Heart. Yes, everyone is equipped to attune to universal wisdom because everyone has been given a heart. And yet the heart seems to be the last gift we open. The most undeveloped resource on the planet is the treasure inside our own treasured chest. Given all the craziness in the world, maybe if we invested in expanding our hearts, we'd have less need to shrink our heads. And less of a need to be all so all-consumed by consumerism. We have learned to spend so much energy pursuing happiness that we never stop to think what would happen if we actually caught it, or rather, if it caught us. With all this hot pursuit, we have left real happiness in the dust. It is sad indeed that we end up jealous that someone else's happiness might be bigger than our own. Freud called this happiness envy. (laughs) 
As the saying goes, money can't buy happiness, although it can buy antidepressants. <laughs> but if you're seeking more out of life than not being depressed, the key to happiness is to grow your own. Every one of us should be asking, what good am I? What good can I add to the greater goodness? Maybe if we had greater goodness, we'd need fewer goods. A lot of wisdom in that. So the first thing to work with this sense of limitation is to acknowledge that it's there, like all of our practices, and not to judge, not to judge ourselves for having it, but just to feel the suffering that it creates, the sense of separation, the sense of limitation, and the, 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 the way it limits our ability to appreciate what we do have when we're doing this comparing and judging. Make the feelings of envy or limitation the focus of your mindfulness itself. So we turn our attention and challenge the assumptions that it's trying to have us believe, that I need that, that they shouldn't have it, that I should have it, that I won't be happy, happy unless I have it. And just really see how coming into the moment has a joy that is beyond any material possession that we could imagine. So we need to be on the lookout for these possibilities for joy and happiness. Never know where they might come and understand what makes you happy and as I keep emphasizing, truly happy and why. I've told a few stories about Australia today. Here's another one. Um, as I said, I go back there once a year. I have all these nieces and nephews and I'm really happy in my reputation as the eccentric aunt because, you know, I meditate and I do yoga. And so I do those things when I go and stay with them. And I'll often hear the door opening and a little, little head will peer in as I'm sitting there. And once my niece kind of said, Sally, you're kind of a little different, aren't you? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> but a little while ago, my sister uh, sent me a photo that made me so happy. What had happened is the local newspaper, the, I mean, millions of people in Melbourne where I'm from get, had included in the Sunday uh, edition a DVD of yoga and meditation. So it was just a great idea, all of these millions of people getting this. And so she started doing it with my young niece, Jaya. And so she sent me this photo of Jaya meditating at the end of her session. And she was seven or eight in the photo in her little leggings, her yogi outfit, sitting there, you know, no, I think her fingers were like, you know, like this, and you have to do mudra, it was yoga meditation. And it just made me so happy to see that, to see, you know, the past, you know, I'd planted a little seed and there it was flowering in, in her at such a young age. And so I told that story in a, another talk I gave on Mudita. And then after that, I told my sister that I told the story about her doing yoga and meditation with Jaya. And so she told Jaya, she said, Sally told a story about you to a hundred people. And Jaya's, you know, she didn't quite get it, but the first thing she said was, did she tell him how flexible I am? <laughs> because the time I'd been visiting, she was getting into gymnastics and her favorite thing was to kind of whip her leg up beside her ear, you know, that gymnastics pose. And I had to say, no, I didn't tell him how flexible she was, but now I have, she's very flexible. <laughs> She'll be very happy that you know that. But so I was relaying this story back and forth. And so my sister told me, 
you know, I said how happy I was, and she said, well, now I can tell you something else. Jaya won the grand final of her basketball tournament by getting the first two goals of the, you know, didn't win it, her team won. She, she scored the first two goals in the basketball grand final. And her other daughter is really excelling in school. And I was so happy to hear this because my sister, Melinda, was never very athletic and never very interested in school. And her kids, you know, she's a single mom, and her kids had often been a handful. And just here, you know, she could tell these great stories of her kids doing well in school and doing well at sports. And it was just so much joy to feel in my happiness, her happiness, their happiness. It, it was really quite lovely just to tune into it. And so we find these opportunities all over of places to be happy and to find happiness. When I, uh, I taught this retreat a couple of years ago, and we actually ended the retreat and stayed on to teach another retreat, a short weekend retreat that was on Mudita, actually. It was the first time we'd taught a whole retreat. It was just a three-day retreat, but on Mudita. It was quite lovely, but we had a few days break. And in that break, Guy and I took a trip to New York. I have only been to New York once or twice before for very short periods, but we stayed for a few days. It's such an amazing city. I mean, full of contrast, but really so vibrant. I had a great time. And one of the things I wanted to do was go to MoMA. And uh, the first, we arrived in the city, got settled in the hotel. I just went off to go to MoMA. It was late in the afternoon. And it was just such a joy to be there and to see in real life these paintings that I had only seen through slides or in books before. You know, Van Gogh's Starry Night, uh, Rousseau's The Gypsy, uh, Salvador Dali's, what is it, The Melting of Time, The Watch One, Persistence of Time. I, I just was smiling going through that museum. It, was ju it just touched me so much. But one of the things that most touched me, I, I got the um, audio, which I don't usually do. I just usually just like to see what I see. But it did give some extra view of what I was looking at. And I went into the room where they have a version of Monet's Water Lilies, which is such, I mean, it's as big as that back wall. It's so amazing to sit there. But on the audio, they talked about the experience of someone at the time of Monet seeing that for the first time. And this person could barely describe it. It was such a transcendent experience. I mean, for us now, we've all seen it. I had a shower curtain with water lilies on it. You know, it's kind of become a bit cliched almost. And to tune into this person's exquisite joy at seeing that amazing piece of art, it just, again, brought another level of my appreciation of that painting. So it works in layers as we open up to Mudita. It's not a simple thing. As we open to joy, it doesn't mean that we let wisdom go. Actually, the greatest joy can come from bringing the insight in, bringing the understanding in of impermanence, that as beautiful as these experiences are or these objects are, they're going to change. And our willingness to be open to that truth, too, brings another layer, another depth to the possibility of joy, even in the letting go. There's a great uh, piece of wisdom from Ajahn Chah where he says, how can you find right understanding 
I can answer you simply by using this glass of water I am holding. It appears to us as clean, as clean and useful, something to drink from and keep for a long time. Right understanding is to see this as a broken glass, as if, as it, as if it has already been shattered. Sooner or later, it will be shattered. If you keep this understanding while you are using it, that it is all it is is a combination of elements which have come together in this form and then will break apart, then no matter what happens to the glass, you will have no problem. The body is like this glass. It is also going to break apart and die. You have to understand that. Yet when you do, it doesn't mean you should go and kill yourself, just as you shouldn't take the glass and break it or throw it away. The glass is something to use until it falls apart in its own natural way. In the same way, the body is a vehicle to use until it goes its own way. Your task is to see what the natural way of things is. This understanding can make you free in all of the changing circumstances of the entire world. And you could say it will make you happy in all of the changing circumstances of the entire world. So we see through all of these practices that we're doing, bringing the wisdom in that opens to the truth of things, the changing nature, the insubstantiality. But it doesn't mean that there's not joy and happiness and the power of intention of what we're choosing to notice. We can choose to notice what's wrong or we can choose to notice what we appreciate. We can choose to follow our old habits of limitation or contraction or aversion or judgment, or we can recondition those to begin to let go so we can bring in acceptance and happiness and contentment. There are opportunities every moment for those kind of choices. It's up to us to make the most of them. So I'll just finish with a short quote from Lao Tzu from the Tao Te Ching. If you realize you have enough, you are truly rich. Be content with what you have. Rejoice in the way things are. When you realize there is nothing lacking, the whole world belongs to you. So let's just sit for a moment. Shall I read another poem called A Blessing? Just off the highway to Rochester, Minnesota, twilight bounds softly forth on the grass, and the eyes of those two Indian ponies darken with kindness. 
They have come gladly out of the willows to welcome my friend and me. We step over the barbed wire into the pasture where they have been grazing all day alone. They ripple tensely. They can hardly contain their happiness that we have come. They bow shyly as wet swans. They love each other. There is no loneliness like theirs. At home once more, they begin munching the young tufts of spring in the darkness. I would like to hold the slenderer one in my arms, for she has walked over to me and nuzzled my left hand. She is black and white, her mane falls wild on her forehead, and the light breeze moves me to caress her long ear that is delicate as the skin over a girl's wrist. Suddenly I realize that if I stepped out of my body, I would break into blossom. May you be happy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.